Welcome to Coastal Crimes. I'm Jen, your host, and today I'm going to be talking about a missing girl from Vermont, Lynn Schultz. When I was researching this case, um, I went down kind of a rabbit hole about what happened to her and the different theories. So I'm not only going to be talking about her disappearance, I'm also going to be talking about one of the most commonly believed theories in her disappearance. But before we get to the case, how about we start off with some fun facts about Middlebury, Vermont, which is where our case takes place. I don't know about you, but I am a big skier. Even though I live in Hawaii, I used to ski in California all the time with my mom. I'm what they used to call as a snow bunny. So I definitely love skiing. And because Middlebury has its very own ski slope, the Middlebury College Snow Bowl is owned and operated by the college. Bonus fun fact, it's the only other college-owned ski area in the United States. The other is owned by Dartmouth College. Originally, Middlebury was an all-male liberal arts college. It was one of the first in New England to become a co-educational institution in 1883. Now, does anybody here watch the league? I have to admit, I never got super into it, but did you know Jason and excuse me if I get this wrong, I'm really bad with names. Jason Montzukas, who plays Rafi, went to Middlebury. He started his career at Otter Nonsense Players, an, impo an improv comedy group on campus. Also, all these actresses seem to have one thing in common, a degree from Middlebury. Anna Belknap from CSI, New York, Kristen Connolly from House of Cards, and Cassidy Freeman from Smallville. It shouldn't be surprising that Middlebury has attracted a lot of Olympic skiers to their campus. Hedda, Hedda Bernstein, again, I'm so sorry if I get these wrong. Uh, Hedda Bernstein from in 1999, Dorcas Den Hartog, 1987, Simi Hamilton, 2009, Andrew Johnson, and Garrett Cousy, or Cousy, 2006, were all part of their country's Olympic team. Painter Hall of Middlebury College is the oldest college building in Vermont and was built using entirely donated materials. And legend has it that the Panther mascot was chosen after a local merchant hosted a contest to choose the symbol in 1922. Though many Middlebury students would like to change the mascot as it has little connection with the actual school. Now, I am a huge fan of The Bachelor. I will definitely admit that my fiance hates it, but Tessa Horst, the winner of season 10, is a graduate from Middlebury's class of 2003. And Alexander Twilight is the first African-American to graduate with a bachelor's degree in the United States at Middlebury College. And last but not least, an ice sculpture competition at the Middlebury Winter Carnival used to be incredibly intense and each fraternity would participate in making complex sculptures. I really couldn't figure out what sculptures they would make, but uh, I let my imagination run wild with this one. So, on to the disappearance of Lynn Schultz. Now, her case is fairly short, which is why I'm going to spend probably the majority of this episode talking about who I think abducted her, but hers is one of the oldest active missing persons cases on file in Vermont, and it is pretty interesting, so I felt like it was an important one to cover. Now, the Independent first reported on Lynn Schultz's case in 2005. 
Her story was thrust into the national spotlight in March of 2015 when Middlebury police confirmed one of the last places Lynn was seen prior to her disappearance on December 10th, 1971, was at a bus stop on Court Street eating dried prunes that she had purchased from All Good Things, a health food store that Robert Durst had operated with his wife Kathleen from 1971 to 1972. She said she was going to take a bus to New York, but the bus had already left. So, as you can already tell, Lynn Schultz did go missing in 1971, but the story didn't even really become popular or even highlighted until 2015, which is huge to me. Now, Lynn returned to campus and was seen in her dormitory. She left her room at 12.55 p.m. She was on her way with her friends to take a final exam in her English drama class when she said she had forgotten her favorite pen and was going to go back to get it. The exam was scheduled for 1 p.m. and she never showed up. At 2.15 p.m., Lynn was seen standing on Court Street, across the street from all the good things and the bus stop where she'd been earlier. This is the last time anyone ever saw or heard from her. A lot of people have the understanding that she was hitchhiking, Detective Chris Bodish said, but that wasn't true. No one ever saw her hitchhiking. Bodish said that while there were reports of her being seen on Route 7, there is no evidence to suggest that she was thumbing for a ride at the time. Bodish noted that Lynn had established a good rapport with members of the Middlebury community. She left her identification, checkbook, and all her personal belongings behind when she vanished. She may have been carrying $30 just in case with her. Campus security was alerted to her disappearance two days after she was last seen, but her parents were not notified for a week. So as you can tell, unfortunately, like a lot of other missing persons cases, hers doesn't really get the attention needed within that first 24 hours. And I think that is a huge misstep in her case. Now, Lynn had mentioned the idea of faking her own death and starting life anew prior to her disappearance, but her friends didn't take her seriously. In the letter she wrote frequently to family and friends back home, she admitted that she felt homesick and had considered withdrawing from school. However, she never indicated she was planning on dropping out of sight or leaving college before the autumn term was over, and she did register for some spring semester classes. Her family doesn't believe she was unusually distressed. She took her English drama class very seriously, had perfect attendance, and studied hard for the final exam that she never attended. Although her academic performance at Middlebury wasn't as good as it had been in high school, she wasn't failing any classes. She actually had registered for January and spring semester classes three days before disappearing. And there were several possible sightings of Lynn after her disappearance, but none of them were confirmed. Several people have made confessions of involvement in her case, but all of their statements turned out to be false. In 2015, authorities announced they were looking at Robert Durst as a possible suspect in Lynn's disappearance. He and his wife Kathleen owned all the good things in 1971, as the health food store that she attended right before she disappeared. Kathleen Durst disappeared from New York City in 1982 and Robert is considered the prime suspect in her case, but he has never faced charges connected to it. 
Another misconception about Lynn's disappearance is that most people believe she was walking to her exam when she went back to get her pen, but actually she wasn't. Her roommate at the time, Penny Bristol, stated Lynn was looking for the pen while still in her room. Both of Lynn's parents died in the 1990s, but her sisters are still alive and hope for a resolution in her disappearance. Lynn's two sisters, Anne Schultz and Janet Schultz Swain, were in Middlebury in October 2019 for two days to walk through Middlebury, get an update from the detective who continues to investigate her case, and search through the Addison Independent Archives for any clues that might finally shed light on what happened to their sister on a day she was preparing to take a final exam and cap her first semester at the college almost 48 years ago. Ann Schultz has been to Middlebury seven times since 1971, searching for clues. Ann and Janet think about their sister often. What would she look like today? What would she have done with her young, promising life? I feel like Lynn is with me daily, Janet said. I think about her all the time. We all get together and I think, these are all the nieces and nephews she's never met. What job would she be retiring from at this point? Durst, a New York real estate scion, was slated to go on trial in January 2020 for the alleged 2000 murder of his longtime friend Susan Berman. Meanwhile, Schultz family members continue to seek answers. Our main purpose is to keep our sister's name and story alive, Anne Schultz said. A big piece of this is to encourage anyone who might have information, even a vague recollection, to share it with Middlebury police. Noted local historian and retired Middlebury College professor, Glenn Andres, gave the two sisters a guided tour through the county's Shire town. While providing them context on how the downtown had looked during the fall of 1971, when Lynn was on campus. Lynn, in her many letters to family and friends, occasionally alluded to her preferred Middlebury stores. Most of the stores Lynn frequented back then are, alas, no more, except for the Vermont bookshop, where she acknowledged, acknowledged shopping. Another one of her favorites, Little Wings, was a knick-knack shop that had a very brief run during the early 1970s. She was fascinated by the novelty of things hanging in the store, some leather things, woven items, Anne said. It's clear Lynn felt a connection to Addison County. She took a whittling class at the Vermont Craft Center at Frog Hollow. She really enjoyed it. She did a project and showed her whittling project to several of her Middlebury College friends, Anne said. She hiked local scenic sites as a member of the Middlebury College Outdoor Club. She also enjoyed cycling and downhill skiing. Investigators don't believe that she felt a desperate need to leave the community on that specific day, especially without telling anyone. Two of Lynn's Simsbury, Connecticut friends also attended Middlebury during the fall semester of 1971, which probably made her transition to college life a lot smoother. Also worth noting is that Lynn did a fair amount of traveling outside of Middlebury during weekends in order to be with high school friends who, like her, had matriculated to various New England colleges. Since Lynn didn't keep a car on campus, she would catch rides with friends or take the bus. Her weekend travel, strong circle of friends, and diligent study habits seemed to conflict with the narrative advanced by past investigators that Lynn was depressed and voluntarily left the Middlebury campus. 
Janet noted former Middlebury Police Chief Robert Van Ness from the beginning said he didn't believe Lynn had become the victim of foul play. He said, I think this was a young lady who needed some time by herself and she'll get back in touch with people when she's good and ready, Janet said. Anne noted Lynn had spoken to her folks on December 8, 1971, two nights before her disappearance. Their mom, who passed away in 1994, wrote a summary of the content of their conversation, which is now part of the Lynn Schultz file at the Middlebury Police Department. She wrote that Lynn was in good spirits and looking forward to coming home, Anne said. Also, on December 8th, Lynn is said to have told friends she was caught up with her studying and was ready to take her exams. She did not run away, Janet said, who instead believes her sister lost her life. We'd like to find out what happened to her, where her remains are, if possible, and why it happened. From the beginning, we felt like she had been killed. But despite that, we all kept hoping. Maybe the unthinkable was that she had done the unthinkable and disappeared. But I think we all knew. The worst case scenario seemed almost inevitable when those first holidays rolled around and Lynn hadn't surfaced. We all really felt that when she didn't come home for Christmas, Anne said, that was two weeks later. It was totally out of character for her. There was seriously something wrong. She doesn't believe Lynn would have secretly changed addresses. She had a very close group of friends. She would have communicated with one of them had she decided to do the mythical thing of hopping on a bus and going to California or wherever it could have been. We'd like the real truth of what happened to her. One of the last people to see her did not know Lynn, had a brief conversation with her, and did not pick up on the feeling she was upset. She used several other descriptions that got carried into news articles that she was depressed. That is not a description I would ever use for my sister, Anne said. Instead, her sisters described Lynn as full of life and curiosity and very eager to explore and experience things. She loved meeting new people and wanted the challenge of new adventures. The Schultz family has shared with investigators all of its correspondence to and from Lynn in hopes of a paragraph, a sentence, or a word might provide a new a new key to unlocking the mystery of her disappearance. We're very appreciative of Detective Chris Bodish, Janet said. She is persistent and she cares. She's doing this on her own time, we've learned, because she had to focus on her current cases. I appreciate her professionalism and I have a lot of trust in her integrity. Though the years roll by since Lynn's disappearance, the Schultz family hasn't given up hope of finding answers so that Lynn's face only appears once on the family calendar, on her birthday. We're hopeful that after all this time, that something may still happen, Janet said. My sister did not just run away because she was unhappy with college, like rumors that spread like wildfire after she was reported missing, Anne said. These rumors were very unfortunate and doomed the investigation from the start, our family believes. We never believed the rumors and knew my sister to always finish what she started. She had a close group of friends from high school and loved her family, whom she would have been in touch with before, if not soon after, if she had intentionally planned to leave college. Her two closest high school friends and her college friend Penny and her husband George Kukul, or Kukul, again, really bad with names, 
have been very supportive in talking with the Middlebury police even recently to share information. So we do not know what happened to Lynn after Penny left her room. Did Lynn start walking to her exam? Did someone show up that she either willingly left with or was she abducted? There are some key missing pieces that still need to be uncovered. Detective Bodish speculated that she knew some people who were off campus. Perhaps she had met that at, met them at Frog Hollow where she took the whittling class. Police are hopeful someone or some people who knew Lynn in the fall of 1971 will remember her and contact the Middlebury police to share their knowledge of her. Any of Lynn's friends who might still have letters from her should provide copies to Middlebury police. Detective Chris Bodish is the latest Mil Middlebury police official to inherit Lynn's case. I'm interested in talking to anyone who was living in Middlebury in 1971, even if they didn't know or see Lynn, Bodish says, and she told The Independent this as well in an email. I see it. This, As I see it, this case is still wide open and I will work any lead that comes in. Bodish can be reached at 802-388-3191 or at kbodish, B-O-W-D-I-S-H, at middlebrypolice.org. Family DNA is on file in hopes of comparing it to any remains that might be recovered and eventually confirmed to be Lynn's. The announcement that Durst was a possible suspect came a week after Durst, then 71 years old, was formally charged on murder and weapons charges following his appearance in the HBO documentary series, The Jinx. Now, little side note, I had The Jinx in my HBO like watch list forever. And as I was writing this episode, I realized, oh my gosh, this sounds familiar. I'm pretty sure I have this in my list and I'm waiting to watch it. And so of course, after doing all the research, I had to watch it and it is so good. Okay, back to the case. We are aware of the connection between Robert Durst and the disappearance of Lynn Schultz, Middlebury Police Chief Tom Hanley said in, an, in a statement. We have been aware of this connection for several years and have been working with various outside agencies as we follow this lead. The Jinx examined Durst's involvement in the 2000 murder case of his friend Susan Berman, as well as the circumstances surrounding the 1982 disappearance of his wife, Kathy. He agreed to an interview for the six-part series, and the season finale featured a clip of Durst, who did not know he was still being recorded, saying to himself, what did I do? Killed them all, of course. So did Robert Durst have anything to do with the disappearance of Middlebury College student Lynn Schultz in 1971? The answer is uncertain, but it's one of the most intriguing leads police have come across in the four plus decades they have been trying to solve the case. I think it's a great lead, but I do not invest myself into any lead 100% said Middlebury Detective Chris Bodish. I would say Robert Durst is the most likely suspect in this case, but unfortunately there is just not enough evidence to tie him to Lynn without the discovery of her body. There are also rumors that point to a family in Middlebury, but I'm not going to name them as they have never been named by police. The only thing that backs this up is that police searched a property in Ripton, Vermont, but nothing came of that search that we know of. And that's what I could find on Lynn Schultz. 
I know it's a small case, but her disappearance really intrigued me and still leaves me wondering what happened. Did she just board a bus that day and disappear? Or did something more sinister happen between her and Robert Durst? So I decided to go digging into Robert Durst and his life, and it is a much deeper dive that I'm going to go into right now. The eldest of four children, Robert Durst was born on April 12, 1943, and grew up in Scarsdale, New York, in a Jewish family. He is the son of real estate investor Seymour Durst and his wife, Bernice Herstein. His siblings are Douglas, Tommy, and Wendy. Durst's, Durst's paternal grandfather, Joseph Durst, was a tailor when he emigrated from Austria-Hungary in 1902 eventually became a successful real estate manager and developer and founded the Durst organization in 1927. Seymour became head of the family business in 1974 upon his father's death. When Robert was seven, his mother died as a result of a fall from the family's Scarsdale home. He later claimed that moments before her death, his father walked him to a window from which he could see her standing on the roof. In a March 2015 New York Times interview, however, his brother Douglas denied that Robert had witnessed her death. As children, Robert and Douglas underwent counseling for sibling rivalry. A 1953 psychiatrist report on 10-year-old Robert mentioned personality decomposition and possibly even schizophrenia. Durst attended Scarsdale High School, where classmates described him as a loner. He earned a bachelor's degree in economics in 1965 from Lehigh University, where he was a member of the varsity lacrosse team and the business manager of the Brown and White student newspaper. Durst enrolled in a doctoral program at the University of California, Los Angeles later that year, where he met Susan Berman, but eventually withdrew from the school and returned to New York in 1969. Durst went on to become a real estate developer in the Durst organization However, his brother Douglas was appointed in 1992 to run the family business. The appointment caused a rift between Robert and his family, which eventually led to him suing for his share of the family fortune. In the fall of 1971, Durst met Kathleen Kathy McCormack, a medical student. After two dates, he invited McCormack to share his home in Vermont, where he had opened a health food store. She moved there in January 1972. However, Durst's father pressured him to move back to New York to work in the family business. The couple returned to Manhattan, where they married on April 12, 1973, Durst's 30th birthday. Shortly before her disappearance, Kathy was a student in her fourth and final year at the, Al at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx, and was only a few months short of earning her degree. She had intended to become a pediatrician. Kathy was last seen by someone other than Durst the evening of January 31st, 1982, when she appeared unexpectedly at a dinner party thrown by her friend Gilberte Najami in Newtown, Connecticut. Najami noticed that Kathy was upset and was wearing red sweatpants, which Najami found odd. Kathy had often dressed in much higher quality clothing. Kathy later left for her marital home in South Salem, New York, after a phone call from her husband. Although the couple argued and fought that evening, 
Durst maintained that he put his wife on a commuter train to New York City at Katona, yeah, I think that's how you say it, at Katona Station, had a drink with a neighbor, and spoke to his wife at their Manhattan apartment by telephone later that evening. That's what I told police, Durst later told documentary filmmakers. I was hoping that would just make everything go away. After Kathy had left Najami's house, she was supposed to meet Najami at a pub called the Lion's Gate in Manhattan. When she failed to show up, Najami became concerned and reportedly called the police for several days. Days later, Durst filed a missing person report as well. A doorman and the building superintendent at the couple's apartment on Riverside Drive claimed to have seen Kathy there on February 1st, which was one day after she was last indisputably seen. But the doorman also said that he had seen her only from behind and from half a block away and couldn't be certain that it was her. A private investigator hired by Durst's own criminal lawyer later reported that the doorman said he had not seen Kathy arrive at all and may not have even been working the night she disappeared. Kathy had been treated at a Bronx hospital for facial bruises three weeks before her disappearance. She told a friend that Durst beat her, but did not press charges over the incident. Kathy asked Durst for a $250,000 divorce settlement. Instead, Durst canceled his wife's credit card, removed her name from a joint bank account, and refused to pay her medical school tuition. At the time Kathy disappeared, Durst had been dating Prudence Farrow for three years and was living in a separate apartment. Durst initially offered $100,000 for his wife's return, then reduced the reward to $15,000. Only three weeks after Durst reported Kathy missing, the superintendent at the Riverside Drive apartment found her possessions in the building's trash compactor. Doesn't really look to me like he's really missing his wife. When one of Kathy's friends and her sister found out that she had been reporting missing, reported missing, they broke into her cottage hoping to find her. Instead, they found the cottage ransacked, Kathy's mail left unopened, and her belongings in the trash. After Kathy went missing, police said that Durst had claimed to have last spoken to her when she called him at the Riverside Drive apartment. He claimed that the last time he had seen her was at the Katona station, where she was planning to board a 9.15 p.m. train to Manhattan. He also claimed that on February 4th, the supervisor at her medical school called him and said that she had called him sick on February 1st and was absent from class for the entire week. It is uncertain if it was indeed Kathy who made that call. The day after Durst received the call from Kathy's medical school, he reported her as missing. The police found his stories to be full of contradictions. Eight years after Kathy's disappearance, Durst divorced her, claiming spousal abandonment. In 2016, the McCormick family asked to have Kathleen declared dead, a request that was granted the following year. Kathleen's mother, Anne McCormick, attempted to sue Durst for $100 million, alleging that he killed Kathy and deprived them of the right to bury her. Kathy's parents are now deceased, unfortunately. But her younger sister, Mary McCormick Hughes, also believes that Durst murdered her. The New, York State the New York State Police quietly reopened the criminal investigation into her disappearance in 1999, searching for Durst's former South Salem residence for the first time. 
The investigation became public in November 2000. In August 2019, a wrongful death lawsuit filed by Kathy's sister, Carol Bamonte, against Durst, which accused him of murdering his wife, was dismissed on the grounds that she had waited too long to file the suit. The death date for Kathy has been changed to, mo to be most likely at the time she disappeared, in 1982, due to murder, instead of the previous determination of 1987 for a missing person. Now, Susan Berman, a longtime friend of Durst who had facilitated his public alibi after Kathy's disappearance, was the daughter of David Berman, a reputed gangster who, in the late 1940s, operated the Flamingo Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas, Nevada. On December 24, 2000, Susan was found murdered execution-style in her home in Benedict Canyon, Los Angeles, after her neighbors called the police to report that her back door was open and her three fox terriers were loose. A few days later, the Beverly Hills Police Department received a handwritten note postmarked December 23rd, which contained Susan's address and the word cadaver. Durst is known to have been in Northern California days before Susan was killed and to have flown from San Francisco to New York the night before Susan's body was discovered. Susan had recently received $50,000 from Durst in two payments. Although Durst confirmed to the Los Angeles Police Department that he had sent her $25,000 and faxed investigators a copy of her 1982 deposition regarding his missing wife, he declined to be further questioned about Susan's murder. Durst said in a 2005 deposition that Susan called him shortly before her death to say that the LAPD wanted to talk to her about Kathy's disappearance. A study of case notes by The Guardian cast doubt on whether the LAPD had made such a call, or whether then Westchester County District Attorney Janine Pirro had scheduled an interview with Susan at all. Durst moved to Galveston, Texas in 2000 and had lived in a boarding house as he had gone into hiding and begun posing as a woman to avoid police inquiries. Durst had been tipped off to the reopened investigation into his wife's disappearance on October 31st, 2000, and immediately began planning for life as a fugitive. Susan's biographer, Kathy Scott, has asserted that Durst killed her because she knew too much about Kathy's disappearance. Almost a year later, on October 9th, 2001, Durst was arrested in Galveston, Texas, shortly after body parts belonging to his elderly neighbor, Morris Black, were found floating in Galveston Bay. He was released on $300,000 bail the next day. Durst missed a court hearing on October 16th, and a warrant was issued for his arrest on a charge of bail jumping. On November 30th, he was caught inside a Wegmans supermarket in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, after trying to shoplift band-aids, a newspaper, and a chicken salad sandwich, even though he had $500 cash in his pocket. A police search of his rental car yielded $37,000 in cash, two guns, marijuana, Black's driver's license, and directions to Gilberte Najami's home in Connecticut. Now, if you remember, Gilberte Najami was a friend of Durst's first wife, Kathy, who went missing. Durst also used his time on the run to stalk his brother Douglas, visiting the driveway of his home in Katona, New York, while armed. Durst employed defense attorney John Waldron while he was held on charges in Pennsylvania. 
he was eventually extradited to Texas for trial. In 2003, Durst was tried for the murder of Morris Black. He employed defense attorney Dick DeGuerin and claimed self-defense. DeGuerin conducted two mock trials in preparation for this case. Durst's defense team had difficulty communicating with him, so they hired psychiatrist Dr. Milton Altshuler to find out why. Dr. Altshuler spent over 70 hours examining Durst and diagnosed him with Asperger's syndrome, saying, his whole life's history is so compatible with the diagnosis of Asperger's disorder. His defense team argued at trial that the diagnosis explained his behavior. Durst claimed he and Morris, a cranky and confrontational loner, struggled for control of Durst's 22 caliber target pistol after Morris grabbed it from its hiding place and threatened him with it. During the struggle, the pistol discharged, shooting Black in the face. During cross-examination, Durst admitted to using a paring knife, two saws, and an axe to dismember Morris's body before bagging and dumping his remains in Galveston Bay. Morris's head was never recovered, so prosecutors were unable to present sufficient forensic evidence to dispute Durst's account of the struggle. As a result of lack of forensics, the jury acquitted Durst of murder on November 11, 2003. On December 21, 2004, a year later, Durst pleaded guilty to two counts of bail jumping and one count of evidence tampering for his dismemberment of Morris's body. As a part of a plea bargain, he received a sentence of five years and was given credit for time served, requiring him to serve three years in prison. Durst was paroled on July 15, 2005 which means he really only served about seven months instead of three years. The rules of his release required him to stay near his home. He had to get permission to travel. That December, Durst made an unauthorized trip to the boarding house where Morris had been killed and to a nearby shopping mall. At the mall, unfortunately for him, he ran into former Galveston trial judge, Susan Chris, who had presided over his trial. Due to this incident, the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles determined that Durst had violated the terms of his parole and returned him to jail. He was released again from custody on March 1st, 2006. Asked in March 2015 whether she believed Durst murdered Black, Chris commented, you could see that this person knew what they were doing and that it was not a first time. The body was cut perfectly like a surgeon who knew how to use this tool on this bone and a certain kind of tool on that muscle. It looked like a not a first time job. And that was pretty scary. In early 2015, a six part HBO documentary titled The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst described circumstantial evidence linking Durst to the murder of Susan Berman, who was believed to have knowledge of Kathy McCormick's disappearance. Durst's first wife. The documentary detailed the disappearance of Kathy, Susan's subsequent death, and the killing of Morris Black. Against the evidence of his lawyers and his wife, Deborah Lee Sheraton, I know, right? Another wife? When did she come into play? Trust me, she's been around for a long time, and she doesn't seem like that great of a person. If you watch the documentary, you'll know what I mean. Anyway, Durst gave multiple interviews and unrestricted access to his personal records to the filmmakers. 
The FBI arrested Durst in New Orleans on the same day as the final episode was broadcast. The documentary ended with him moving into a bathroom where his microphone recorded him, seemingly saying to himself, There it is. You're caught. You're right, of course. But you can't imagine. Arrest him? I don't know what's in the house. I want this. What a disaster. He was right. I was wrong. And the burping. I'm having difficulty with the question. What the hell did I do? Killed them all, of course. It's really quite chilling if you watch the documentary and see him say that. It's Or hear him say that. It's crazy. Anyway. The Associated Press reported that a March 1999 letter from Durst to Susan Berman, discovered by her stepson and turned over to the filmmakers during their research, provided key new evidence leading to the filing of murder charges. A few days after a first-degree warrant was signed by a Los Angeles judge in relation to the Susan Berman killing, Durst was arrested by FBI agents on March 14, 2015, at the Canal Street Marriott in New Orleans, where he had registered under the false name Everett Ward. At least he wasn't pretending to be a woman this time. Durst, who had been tracked to the hotel after making two calls to check his voicemail, was observed wandering aimlessly in the lobby and mumbling to himself, having driven to New Orleans from Houston four days before. In addition to a 38 revolver loaded with four live rounds and one spent shell casing, police recovered five ounces of marijuana, Durst's birth certificate and passport, maps of Louisiana, Florida, and Cuba, a flesh-toned, sorry, excuse me, a flesh-toned latex mask, the fake Texas ID used to check into the hotel, a new cell phone, and cash totaling $42,631. Police discovered a UPS tracking number, which led to an additional $117,000 cash and a pair of shoes in a package sent by Durst to a friend in New York, which was seized after his arrest. Bank statements found in one of Durst's Houston condominiums revealed cash withdrawals of $315,000 in little more than a month. Talk about excessive spending. On March 15, 2015, New York State Police Investigator Joseph Becerra, long involved with the Kathy McCormick case and said to have been working closely with the FBI and Los Angeles detectives, removed some 60 file boxes of Durst's personal papers and effects from the home of Durst's friend Susan T. Giordano in Campbell Hall, New York. All of these items had been sent to Giordano for safekeeping three years prior by Deborah Lee Sheraton, Durst's wife. Also stored at Giordano's residence were videotaped depositions of Durst, Durst's brother, Douglas, and Deborah herself all of which were related to the Morris Black case. Los Angeles County Deputy District Attorney John Lewin, in charge of prosecuting Durst, claimed to have found information uncovered by the filmmakers in the HBO documentary series The Jinx to be compelling and reportedly flew to New York to interview witnesses, including friends of Durst and Susan Berman. On March 16, 2015, defense attorney Richard DeGuerin I'm really not sure if I'm saying that right, but we'll just go with it. 
advised court authorities in New Orleans that his client waived extradition and would voluntarily return to California. Later that same day, Louisiana State Police filed charges against Durst for being a felon in possession of a firearm and for possession of a firearm with a controlled substance, forestalling his immediate return to California. Orleans Parish District Attorney Leon Canizaro commented that, in light of prior convictions that could influence Durst's sentencing, just for those gun charges here in Louisiana, Durst could face up to life in prison. On March 23rd, Durst was denied bail by a Louisiana judge after prosecutors argued he was a flight risk. In an effort to hasten his extradition to California and avoid a protracted Louisiana court battle, DeGuerin raised questions about the validity of the New Orleans arrest and hotel room search, pointing out that a local judge did not issue a warrant until hours after his client was detained. While communicating with the LAPD and conducting an inventory of Durst's hotel room possessions, the FBI held him there, incommunicado, for almost eight hours. According to DeGuerin, Durst was questioned extensively by a Los Angeles prosecutor and detective, without a lawyer present, on the morning after his arrest. In failing to produce the arresting officers subpoenaed for a probable cause hearing, Durst's attorneys charged that Louisiana prosecutors engaged in a misguided attempt to conceal the facts from the court, the defendant, and the public. Peter Mansfield, an assistant U.S. attorney, said that his office instructed the two FBI agents and arresting officer not to appear, arguing that DeGuerin's subpoenas were issued in an attempt to conduct actions against them in their official capacities for the purpose of obtaining testimony, information, and material maintained under color of their official duties. On April 8th, a day after the U.S. attorney filed an independent federal weapons charge, Durst was formally indicted by a Louisiana grand jury for carrying a weapon with a controlled substance and for the illegal possession of a firearm by a felon. Later that month, Durst's lawyers requested that more than $161,000 seized by authorities during their searches be returned, saying the cash is not needed as evidence, is not contraband, and is not subject to forfeiture. After after negotiations with Durst's defense team, Louisiana authorities ultimately dropped weapons charges against Durst on April 23, 2015. This guy... I swear, is like one of the luckiest killers ever. Durst's trial on the federal weapons charge was scheduled for September 21st, 2015. DeGuerin confirmed rumors that Durst was in poor health, stating that he suffers from hydrocephalus and had a stent put into his skull two years before, as well as spinal surgery and a cancerous mass removed from his esophagus. Durst's attorneys requested a later date for the federal weapons charge trial, saying they need more time to prepare after rulings on pending motions. U.S. District Judge Helen Berrigan later rescheduled the trial to January 11, 2016. On November 16, 2015, a New Orleans federal judge ordered Durst rearranged on the weapons charges and scheduled a hearing for December 17. When asked, Durst's attorney said only that Durst did not kill Susan Berman and that he wants to resolve the other charges to expedite Durst's extradition to Los Angeles to face that charge. 
On December 16, 2015, prosecutors and defense attorneys told Berrigan in a joint motion that scheduling conflicts ruled out all dates before a January 11 trial. Berrigan ultimately rescheduled the trial for February 3, 2016, and Durst changed his plea to guilty to the federal gun charge and received an 85-month prison sentence. Durst was originally placed in USP Terre Haute, I think that's how you say it, but was later transferred to a Los Angeles County jail awaiting trial. Finally, the trial was scheduled to begin in Los Angeles after Durst was arraigned in California, but his transfer was delayed by the U.S. Bureau of Prisons due to serious surgery, according to DeGuerin. A conditional hearing was convened in February 2017, where Nick Chauvin, Durst's close friend and best man at Chauvin's wedding, testified that Durst had confessed to him of having murdered Susan Berman. Chauvin will be one of the prosecution's witnesses against Durst. A preliminary hearing was initially scheduled for October 2017, but was postponed to April 2018 to accommodate Durst's defense team, some of whom suffered damage to their homes and offices from Hurricane Harvey. The pre-trial hearings included extensive testimony from a number of older witnesses who potentially would not be available when the trial itself begins. In October 2018, Los Angeles County Superior Judge Mark Windham ruled there was enough evidence to try Durst for the murder of Susan Berman, and Durst would be arraigned November 8, 2018. During his court appearance the following day, Durst pleaded not guilty. In January 2019, Judge Wyndham set Durst's trial date as September 3, 2019. Nineteen years after Susan was murdered. At the same time, the judge ruled that prosecutors can present evidence involving the black murder. Prosecutors will try to connect Susan's death with Kathy McCormick's disappearance, which they want to show as the foundation for the motive for Berman's slaying. In his ruling that prosecutors could use evidence from the Texas case, Judge Wyndham said the killings of Morris Black and, C and Susan Berman seemed to be intertwined. The murder charge against Durst includes the special circumstance allegations of lying in wait and killing a witness to a crime. There is also an allegation that he used a handgun to carry out the murder. In May 2019, a motion filed by Durst's attorneys claimed two handwriting samples, the anonymous cadaver note from 2000 informing Beverly Hills police that a body could be found at Susan's house, and a letter in 1999 from Durst to Susan, along with other evidence from his 2015 arrest at his hotel in New Orleans, were illegally obtained. Durst's lawyers also claimed there was a Fourth Amendment violation that would exclude the New Orleans evidence and that the search of his hotel room was unlawful. On May 8, 2019, Los Angeles County prosecutors filed an affidavit replying to the motion. Prosecutor John Lewin said Durst is creating an elaborate conspiracy theory between the producers of the HBO documentary miniseries The Jinx, law enforcement officers, and the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office to make the defendant incriminate himself and to time his arrest to maximize media attention and ratings. However, the defendant completely fails to acknowledge the most relevant fact leading to his arrest and the subsequent search of his hotel room and damning interview. 
law enforcement was on notice that the defendant was actively preparing to flee the country right after crucial evidence connecting him to Susan's murder was widely publicized on national television. When viewed in this context, it is readily apparent that the actions taken by law enforcement were more than reasonable. They were absolutely necessary to prevent a murderer who had already avoided apprehension for more than 30 years from fleeing the country and evading justice. On May 17, 2019, LA County Judge Mark Windham granted Durst's defense team a four-month postponement of his murder trial. The delay was granted after defense lawyers raised concerns about the volume of evidence in the case and, conflict, and conflicts with attorney schedules. On September 3, 2019, Judge Wyndham rejected an attempt by defense attorneys for Durst to strip the producers of the jinx of protection under California's journalist shield law by having them declared government agents. A number of their procedural rulings also went against Durst. LA County, LA County prosecuting attorney John Lewin set another hearing on discovery and other matters for October 28th. Additional evidential hearings were held in December 2019 regarding the admissibility of statements Durst made in March 2015, just after his arrest in New Orleans at an interview with Lewin. So all of this like motions and movements is just an example of how long our justice system takes to actually get a trial started. It's already the end of 2019 and it hasn't even started. Then, in a surprise move on December 24th, 2019, Durst's lawyers contradicted his previous statements and filed court documents admitting that Durst wrote the cadaver note. In all previous statements about the note, Durst consistently denied writing it, although the handwriting appears to be identical to his own, as is the misspelling of the word Beverly, contained in a prior letter to Susan that Durst admitted to authoring. During the filing of the jinx, Durst told filmmakers that the person who wrote the cadaver note was taking a big risk because it is something that only the killer could have written. He told his godson, Howard Altman, the person who wrote the note killed her. And now he's admitting to writing the note. What an idiot. However, in August 2019, Durst's attorneys also argued that what the note demonstrated is that the person who mailed it was aware that there was a body at the house, not that the individual murdered Susan Berman. Finally, on March 2, 2020, Durst appeared in court to begin his trial for the murder of Susan Berman, which was expected to take several months. However, you probably have guessed it already. The proceedings were postponed amid the COVID-19 pandemic. In June 2020, a motion by the defense for a mistrial because of the delay was denied. In July 2020, Judge Wyndham ruled that a further delay until April 2021 was necessary due to the COVID-19 pandemic, but he would allow the trial to proceed if Durst agreed to a bench trial, which means without a jury. Durst declined this option, and the trial is scheduled to resume on April 12, 2021. Now, that's not too far away, so I will be searching for updates on this, and will include that probably in one of my, like, mini-sode update episodes. 
Now, there have been even other cases that have been connected to Durst, but haven't been able to really been charged, including Lynn Schultz from Middlebury, Vermont, and 16-year-old Karen Mitchell from Eureka, California. Investigators are also looking into a possible connection between Durst and the disappearance of 18-year-old Kristen Madoffery, who was last seen in San Francisco in 1997. DeGuerin, his defense attorney, characterized the Schultz investigation as opportunistic and said he would not permit his client to be questioned by Vermont police. Author and investigative journalist Matt Ber- Birkbeck reported in 2003 and again in his 2015 book, A Deadly Secret, that credit card records placed Durst in Eureka on November 25, 1997, the day Karen vanished. Karen may have volunteered in a homeless shelter that Durst frequented. Durst, dressed in women's clothing because he loved to pose as a woman, apparently, had visited the Eureka shoe store owned by Karen's aunt. Karen was last seen walking to work from her aunt's store and possibly speaking to someone in a stopped car. A witness sketch of Karen's presumed abductor resembles Durst. Although the FBI ultimately could not connect Durst to the Long Island serial serial murders, in which some victims were disposed of in a similar manner to the Morris Black killing, the Bureau created an an informal task force in 2012 to work with investigative agencies and jurisdictions where Durst was known to have lived in past decades, including Vermont, New York, and California. In the wake of his recent arrest, the FBI encouraged such localities to re-examine cold cases. Texas private investigator Bobby Baca, or Bacha, not sure how you say that, has also traced Durst operating under stolen identities in Texas, Florida, Massachusetts, New Jersey, South Carolina, Mississippi, and Virginia. So I will definitely be keeping an eye on this guy. Um, It's pretty obvious that he hasn't, you know, stopped doing what he had been doing. Well, now because he's probably in jail. Um, hopefully, the Susan Berman trial will get a good ruling and he will end up in jail. We will just have to wait and see. So that's it for now. I hope you really liked the episode. And thanks for I'll listening with to you Coastal week. Crimes. Check out my website and blog at coastalcrimespod.com. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Coastal Crimes Pod. If you have questions or recommendations to share, email me at coastalcrimespod at gmail.com. Episodes are available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and basically wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to spread the word. If you'd like to show your support and get a shout out on air, please visit my Patreon page to keep this show going.